I'm very happy to have with me today uh, Dr. Alexandre de Hoopschreffer, who is a director of research and also director of the Paris Office of the German Marshall Fund of the United States. She is directing the Transatlantic Trends Annual Survey, and her areas of expertise include geopolitics, transatlantic relations, US and French foreign policies, and European affairs. Before joining the German Marshall Fund, Alexandra held several positions in the French government and academia and advised international organizations. Now, as for the German Marshall Fund, for those of you that don't yet know it, but you should know it, it's a nonpartisan policy organization committed to the idea that the United States and Europe can be stronger together. The German Marshall Fund works on issues critical to transatlantic interests in the 21st century, including the future of democracy, security and defense, geopolitics, and the rise of China and technology and innovation. Quite a wash list, Alexandra, and quite a lot of topics for you to, to focus on. Really, today, of course, having this conversation in March 2020, uh, it's, it's a key time for US-EU relations. We had uh, the Trump years, we had uh, challenges in terms of um, health issues like the pandemic, but also uh, ambitious regulatory agendas and a changing view of what financial markets are doing and how economies are progressing. So again, it seems as if there are so many different challenges coming from, from, from different areas, but it's, it's interesting to see that with the new administration, with Joe Biden, um, there is a complete change uh, back to, to what, where we were with, with, with Donald Trump. And I think that uh, is only possible in the US. I think what is always fascinating to me is to see these, these radical changes and how quickly they can turn around. And we'll be going into that a little bit. Joe Biden on the 4th of February remarked that the administration will repair alliances. And indeed he rejoined COP21 and will engage also with the world once again to meet today's and tomorrow's challenges. And I think he's, he's not stopped doing that basically, which is really uh, you know, very encouraging. Now, when you look at the, the transatlantic relations, what have you been focusing on from the perspective of the German Marshall Front from the last years? And what are you seeing as, as the major changes from the Biden administration in terms of the relationship to the EU today? Well, first of all, thank you very much for your invitation. I'm very happy to have uh, that conversation uh, with you. And as you rightly said, a very timely a moment uh, for the transatlantic uh, relationship. I mean, this this last year, the German Marshall Fund, as you said, as a uh, as a transatlantic organization, a transatlantic think tank, has been working on many issues. But more specifically, and um, I would say these last four years on the future uh, of democracy, security and defense, uh, geopolitics, of course, the rise of China. Uh, we are uh, among the first think tanks that have actually been thinking of uh, tri trilateral dialogues between Americans, Europeans, and Chinese, and the same with Japanese and, uh, and Indians. Uh, so we are very well known for transatlantic dialogue with uh, Asian powers. And we have also been increasingly working on the challenges related to technology and innovation. And as you can see on all of these issues, transatlantic dialogue and cooperations are absolutely fundamental. And we do that in three ways. First, it's, of course, by trying to drive the policy debate uh, through analysis, 
policy papers, our convening, but also by cultivating the next generation of leaders on both sides of the Atlantic. I think that's extremely important that the younger generation is trained to think critically about geopolitical, geostrategic, geoeconomic issues uh, today. Um, so about your, your, your question on what has changed with the Biden uh, administration, uh, my colleagues and I based in, in Paris have written a, a policy piece a few weeks ago called Seizing Biden's Pivot to Europe, Time for Responsibility Sharing. And indeed, I think that Joe Biden is probably the most pro-European president sitting in the White House, actually much more than Barack Obama. Barack Obama for me was the, actually the first post-European American president, right? Let's all remember, you know, the 2008 financial crisis, uh, the implications of that for the transatlantic link. Europe at that time was more seen as a problem rather than as a solution in, in that particular context. Today, what really strikes, especially after four years of Trump, is that Biden and his team understand that Europe is the United States' most important important ally in order to deal with the 21st century challenges. And the very first signal to me uh, sitting here in Paris was uh, that this was immediately implemented after Biden's inauguration through the reactivation of the so-called E3 plus United States dialogue uh, format, France, Germany, the UK and the United States uh, to discuss about the most pressing policy issues, Iran, climate, China, Burma. Uh, so when, and I'll stop with, there, with that, when, when Biden says America is back, I would basically say it's consultation is back. Consultation is back with European allies. So that is to me the number one change. And this immediately had an impact, a very constructive one in, in the transatlantic relationship, even though it doesn't mean we agree on everything. There is still a lot of points of tensions and disagreements among transatlantic partners. Alexandra, I, I love your comment on the young generation and how they, they should be included. And, and I, I certainly think that. I think it's enough time for the old fuzzies to regulate and to drive the world. We've, we've, we've seen it with teenagers rising up to talk about climate change. And I think this is indeed a, a, a really a good way to, to talk about the future. And I also really noted your point on these uh, the groups of countries talking together. So France, the UK, Germany, and the US as a group. We're seeing this in Europe, the building up of regional, but also across regions and uh, addressing uh, addressing issues. And um, this, this, for example, the uh, Finnish government, the Estonian, Danish, and um, Dutch governments addressed a letter, and Ursula von der Leyen also addressed a letter to Ursula von and of the, the head of the European Commission on digitalization and how important that was. So I think seeing these alliances is, is going to be probably something for the future, not just the big drivers of the G20, etc. But looking, I think Joe Biden, really, it's, it's, he's been in the driving seat from, from day one. Uh, um, but also, I think what is interesting is his announcing a foreign policy for the middle class. 
and, and drawing a distinction between what is foreign and domestic policy, and saying also that every action we take in our conduct abroad, we must take with American working families in mind. That's really interesting because that's a quite a different perspective to what previous presidents had. Advancing a policy, foreign policy for the middle class demands urgent focus on our domestic economic renewal. And I think I would also point out to an article that appeared in the Financial Times today, uh, which talks about mining the economic gap. And of course, we have mined the gap from the UK uh, underground system. But minding the economic gap between the US and the EU, we've seen the recovery plan announced in, in the US of $1.9 trillion. That compares to the 750 billion euros and also the very quick reaction that Biden, the Biden administration has shown. So looking at this foreign policy for the middle class, what does that really mean? And how will it really impact the US international engagement and trade and relationships with the EU, for example? Yeah, well, I think there is much more continuity um, than um, than a, a true rupture. Um, if we go, if we take the Obama, Trump, and Biden sequence, we remember that Obama used the term "nation building at home." Right? We need to concentrate on building American infrastructure, on rebuilding our healthcare system. That was really the light motive under his administration. Even though, like many other American administration, he got involved again in the Middle East and the you know, so-called military involvement and crisis management. Then you have Trump. Trump was America first. And now you have uh, a foreign policy for the middle class or what uh, Biden's Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, called a foreign policy for the American people. That's actually the way Blinken framed his first major foreign policy speech that he made just a few, a few days ago. But all of that... Uh, really converges in one uh, same direction, which is that the priority, and Trump did it in a very radical way, but Biden is pursuing it, um, as you rightfully said, so maybe in a, in, in a softer rhetoric, but in the practice, uh, probably is going to be much, uh, much tougher. It's about restoring reciprocity. Uh, in American relationships with allies and vis-a-vis -vis, uh, rivals. But Biden is trying to strike a balance uh, between um, rejecting items or aspects of Trump's America First policy and uh, accepting Trump's legacy. Uh, what is he is rejecting in the America First uh, policy is the fact that uh, Trump didn't consult with allies and rejected multilateralism and working within alliances. So we see that's a fundamental change. But what he is keeping as something not to reject from uh, the Trump's America First policy is exactly what you just said. Um, it's about you know, tackling unfair trade, trade practices, trying to better share the burden with um, European allies, but also with Asian allies. We've seen these last few days a lot of high-ranking members of the Biden administration traveling to Asia to meet with the Japanese ally, with South Korean ally, and try also to renegotiate the way 
the burden sharing from a military standpoint is being handled in the region. So that's really a continuity. But then what does it says, what are the implications uh, for transatlantic partners? Well, it means that, and Biden has been very clear about it, um, is going to focus on the domestic uh, policies, right? Number one, COVID. Obviously, uh, we, we see that, you know, his number one big legislative success was to pass that almost two billion uh, dollars um, uh, recovery plan uh, for the Americans. So that was his number one priority. And to a big extent, that heavy domestic focus of Biden's agenda creates some space for Europeans uh, to step up and to play a more important role in areas where uh, they have a comparative advantage or comparative expertise. So that's why, you know, the notion of, of Biden pivoting to Europe seems to be the right one because he needs Europeans to fill some gaps to step up to increasingly share uh, the burden, especially in terms of uh, crisis management in our southern neighborhood. And this is where France plays uh, a very important leadership role so that Biden can concentrate on the domestic urgencies he is facing after four years of Trump presidency. And so that he can also focus on his number one geopolitical priority, which is China. So when, when you look at, you mentioned Biden's approach to Europe, but Europe is not Europe anymore as, as we knew it in the past. We have the UK and we have the EU and we have the rest of Europe. Brexit is likely to have quite an impact, I would say, because the Biden administration will need to dualize almost where they had a one stream of, of, of discussion. Um, and it's interesting that there was this group working together with France, Germany and the UK and, and the US. So I think it, it, this for me will be really a testing to see how these relationships develop. What do you think on, on the, the UK now? Uh, the UK is, is looking increasingly likely to take separate regulatory approaches, including on financial services. We've seen the Hill report on listing requirements, which are already showing quite a large divergence with what is being practiced in the EU. The UK has not hidden underneath uh, it chairs or sofas or whatever, that it's, it's hoping to strike a very strong new transatlantic partnership and trade deal with the US. But again, the EU is an important single market. How will the Biden administration play this changing relationship? Yeah, you're right to say that Brexit has redefined the balance of power in Europe. This, to a certain extent, has strengthened the UK-US relationship I would say on especially on the China challenge, because this is where, as you know, there has been a certain uh, point of tension um, between the Biden administration not having been, been inaugurated and the EU having signed the, in principle, the EU-China investment agreement last December. And that has resonated in a quite a negative way uh, within the Biden team. And this is where the UK has tried to connect 
and strengthen its relationship with the United States. Very, very concretely, the UK is just releasing today, uh, March 16th, its integrated review, which is um, a document uh, which outlines the UK's defense, security, strategic priorities um, in the world. And what's striking to me is that Britain is expanding its influence in the Indo-Pacific region, calling to preserve strong ties uh, with the United States and calling the Indo-Pacific as an increasingly the geopolitical center of the world. So what you're seeing is a British alignment on the U.S. balancing strategy, including from a military standpoint, vis-a-vis China. And you have the same type of policy on the tech issues and all of that. So there is a real UK-US convergence on China, which is the number one priority of Biden's foreign policy, which you have less with the EU. So that already is a, is, is, is a difference. However, however, uh, John Kerry just a few days ago was traveling to Brussels, uh, yeah. Paris, London, you know, to discuss climate. The fact that he went to Brussels is, is really important. Uh, the fact that, uh, you know, you had a high level NATO meeting, which led also to the decision to increase NATO's uh, mission in Iraq as, uh, you know, a part of that coalition against the uh, Islamic State was also part of these important transatlantic discussions and that actually go through Brussels. So what you're seeing, and that is a big contrast compared to Trump is that the Biden administration recognizes the EU, Brussels, the EU institutions as an important player on key issues. Number one, climate, but of course trade. Um, And then we'll be looking at more bilateral relationships with France, for example, when it comes to counterterrorism efforts in the Sahel, on uh, with Germany, on economic issues, um, on China, uh, because there is a certain amount of disagreements between Germany and the United States on how to handle China. On Russia, what was really interesting is that you had uh, sanctions that were closely coordinated between the EU and the United States demonstration of transatlantic unity. So to to sanction the the Russia's uh, prosecutor general and the head of the federal prison service as a way to uh, penalize Russia over Navalny's imprisonment. And you also have more coordination between the US and the EU, once again, vis-a-vis Turkey. The two issues where I see tensions today between the US and EU is on uh, digital taxations. That's uh, that's for sure. And the other one is steel tariffs, uh, because this is where you have the tension between the uh, foreign policy for the middle class and the tensions of rebuilding the transatlantic link. And I don't see for now any kind of a solution when it comes to Biden deciding or not to alleviate these steel tariffs uh, imposed by Trump on, on the EU. 
What I think was really interesting in your comments was that you see Biden actually as a power broker bringing together the UK and the EU, interestingly enough, through the geopolitical environment. And I think that is a very interesting point, because at the moment we, you know, we see daily articles on the standoff between the UK and the EU. But, you know, Biden might be actually sort of this, this, this brokering, and that might change the dynamics quite considerably. So I think that's that's very interesting. You published last year the transatlantic trends, which I would recommend everyone to read. I found them really fascinating, which looks at French, German and American public opinions on major issues facing the transatlantic partners. And you have already raised quite a few. But where do you think the the, the Europeans and the American, uh, Americans converge or diverge the most? Is it on technology, climate change or global health with the pandemic? Well, what's what's really interesting is that despite uh, the pandemic, because we we asked the same questions before uh, the outbreak of the COVID-19 crisis and after the outbreak, so we could see how this pandemic had affected or not public opinions that were asked these questions in France, um, Germany and the United States. And what I thought was extremely interesting, especially in France and Germany, is that climate change, despite the pandemic still ranked as the top issue uh, to tackle for France and Germany and as the top issue for transatlantic cooperation. On the other side, Atlantic Americans uh, perceived health pandemics as the number one issue to tackle in cooperation with Europeans. So so that was um, an interesting trend um, in terms also of how climate change is deeply anchored into the French-German mindset as the top priority to to handle. The other issue that I thought was was quite uh, uh, striking is the way Europeans perceive the United States today as as a world power. The U.S. is still perceived as the most influential uh, power, but the COVID-19 crisis has has really affected that perception. And all the points that the United States lost went to China. And this is where I bring China in because we had the China chapter. China's perceived global influence has grown in the free countries sometimes by 10 10 points, which is really a lot. But at the same time, uh, China's influence is seen as increasingly negative. And so when we asked French, German and Americans, do you think your government uh, should take tougher or softer policies towards China on the range of issues, human rights, climate change, uh, cyber issues, um, you know, um, the, the, the territorial uh, uh, tensions in the South China Sea. There was a general agreement among Americans, French and German that their governments had to be tougher on China on two main issues, human rights, and climate change. So it's interesting to see how public opinions converge actually on many of these um, important issues. I think that's very encouraging because it does play to a global agenda is then that might be possible specifically on climate change, which is such a challenge. Lastly, and a very short question, because I realize we've taken up quite a bit of your time already and I don't want to, 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 to drag on too much, but 
I found it extremely interesting. And I want to ask you a final question on, on vaccines and protectionism and the power play. So the EU has been controlling, let's say, exports of vaccines, but the US uh, also has been banning exportation of vaccines. Um, so how, uh, how do you see this affecting, uh, of course, the developing nations which are suffering? Uh, you see the, you know, the, the call for an international sort of free-for-all vaccine and that we should we, we should um, control this on a global agenda. But is this is this likely to impact the transatlantic relationship? Well, I think, you know, President Biden has been uh, pretty clear. You know, he said, if we have a surplus of vac vaccines, we're going to share it with the, with the rest of the world, right? So it's really America first. Um, yeah. And I think that the number one test for U.S. global leadership, global leadership under Biden, will really be the way he addresses global health issues uh, and the way vaccines are distributed uh, in the world and in including to, to the, the, some of the poorest uh, uh, countries who still don't have access to the vaccines. But we see it's still America first. The EU also got accused of vaccine uh, nationalism. Uh, you know, uh, the EU came under heavy criticism after uh, Italy blocked just a few days ago the export of uh, AstraZeneca uh, doses to uh, Australia with you know the EU approval. So there is a lot of battles uh, on, on that front. Um, the EU you know is under huge pressure over its slow vaccine rollout. Infections are, are rising while the US and the UK are racing ahead with vaccination. So that obviously triggers triggers transatlantic tensions. Um, and in parallel to that, and probably as a consequence of that, you have vaccine diplomacy, right, with Russia and China that are distributing vaccines all across Europe, especially in Hungary. Austria and Denmark are discussing supplies with Israel. Uh, so there is a, a problem of the vaccine management from a Brussels uh, perspective. Uh, and this, this health management issues is having durable geopolitical, geostrategic consequences. And I think that's really the lessons that we are just starting to learn from this COVID crisis is that this is not a purely health crisis. It's also uh, an economic, social crisis and a profoundly political, geopolitical crisis. And the only way you know, to coordinate uh, the vaccine strategy is to overcome what I would call the crisis of multilateralism and the crisis of collective action. You know, you talked about the G20 at the beginning. The G20 is, you know, supposed to play a role of coordination, especially in the context of a health uh, crisis and has not been playing that role. Also, by default of U.S. leadership under the Trump administration, the WHO is uh, clearly struggling in handling that, uh, that crisis as well. So this really is also a revealer of the lack of multilateral coordination. So I would end up by saying that I think that the United States, European governments, 
uh, must try to balance, you know, the, of course, the political imperative to prioritize their own citizens, and that's totally normal, and that's what all citizens expect from their governments, with collaboration, international cooperation to ensure that vaccine reach those uh, who need them most. And we have still not reached that level of, of, of coordination today. Alexandra, I, I often compare the COVID crisis, as I will call it, to a war. And in war, true leaders come to the fore. Yeah. If you're able to overcome your national protectionism and lead uh, your region, you increase that statementship. It's, it's, what, it's what Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt were able to do. And let us hope that we will find uh, similar figures to raise that transatlantic dialogue to, for the common good of, of the world. Thank you so much, Alexandra. It's been a real pleasure to, to talk to you. And um, definitely, I would recommend everyone to look at the transatlantic trends and to look up what the German Marshall Fund does. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.